welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm super excited to have Tony Hall back on the podcast. So Tony is, well, maybe you should ex- explain what you do, your role with Lollum and Tony, and uh, we'll kind of roll from there. Okay, Keith. Hey, good morning. And good morning, everybody. And Keith, thanks for this opportunity. I'm uh, what's loosely called uh, the Dairy Tech Support Specialist for, for Lollum on Animal Nutrition here in North America. And uh, I think my feet goes into both camps, obviously with a role in the uh, the feeding side of dairy cows. But uh, I think as you're going to help us with the uh, the discussion this morning, Keith, uh, part of that role is obviously what's grown on farm and particularly, you know, farm forages. And so I have I have a role in that camp as well in, in trying to encourage the industry as a whole, you know, to make the uh, the highest quality forage possible, right? Yeah, and I know, and, and it's kind of one of those vague topics. Like I, we talk about a lot is forage quality, but what is quality? I guess is the real question that I kind of want to drill down on today. So, what kind of got me thinking about this, Tony, is I don't know if you've heard this or not, but uh, feed's a little bit expensive right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh God, I shouldn't laugh, but isn't it just? <laughs> oh, it's it, it's it's getting ridiculous and. Like if you look at the markets, there, it looks like there might be a little bit of reprieve here coming into summer and things like that. But it's just it's just insane now. But um, so I know we always kind of talk about the main driver of of feed costs being forage quality. So I just want to talk a little bit about um, some different indicators and and you know what are some things we could look for, say on a forage sample, um, to indicate quality. I know. A lot of producers just kind of go back to crude protein, but I'm not convinced that it's always the best indicator. I think we have to look at the whole sample and then kind of go from there. So if you want to walk us through uh, maybe some things that you look at uh, when you're analyzing forages. Sure. I'm, I'm well said. And, and let me just go back right to the beginning of your introduction. To, to me, we've always kind of talked about forage quality and its impact on, you know, income over feed costs. But I, I think this year, with the background of high feed costs, like you said, and then let's you and I and the audience think about fertilizer costs. If ever there was a year for making sure we got the best bang for the book for forage, for forage quality, uh, then this is going to be the year because just to grow the crop in its environment, the fertilizer is not going to be cheap. And so you want to make sure that once that fertilizer has gone on, you're getting rid of the best the best crop that you can. So let's let's pick up some of the key areas that that, that you alluded to. I think if we just start with a, you know, a broad definition of forage quality, like a degree of excellence, something that we're going to want to achieve. And that really depends on, for us, where it goes. So I'm going to focus more on the lactating dairy cow where, you know, the the, the real challenges are. But obviously, you, you and I and the audience will accept, you know, there could be other forage types going for, you know, dry cows and transition cows and replacement heifers that would be of a different quality. But you, you make an interesting point. I, I think across across the whole of North America, if we travel down from Canada all the way through the US and into Mexico, I think one of the one of the common things that you and I would hear in the industry is, oh, look at my crude protein content on this grass, it's nice and high, or look at my crude protein content on the alfalfa here. You know, I'm I'm in the 22s, but but why aren't my cows doing so well? And I think what, what one of the things we, we'd like um, you know, our audience to understand is that. Crude protein is basically that. It's crude. It's basically a, a number calculated from the nitrogen content in the forage, you know, to put that as simplistically as we can. So it's not all usable protein. And what, and what tends to happen with the protein content, you know, in, in, in these crops, particularly as they're turned into end silage, which is the majority of the situations we find ourselves in, you know, that protein becomes very de- degradable and very soluble. So it's not protein in the true sense of the word. It's a mixture of what we would call proteins, some and non-protein nitrogen, just fractions, which may or may not be captured by the room in the dairy cow. So I think when you and I are looking at reports, you know, we we would make a nod towards crude protein. But I'd have to be honest, Keith, it it would not be the first thing that I would look at. If if, if I was looking, you know, at a forage report, just the 30,000 view foot here, and we can drill down into each area to give the audience a feel for what areas of that feed into the total quality package one of the first things i'm going to look at is like you know the ndf content 
the lignin content, and then, you know, what the NDF digestibility is, how usable that NDF is going to be in the cow's rumen or, may, or maybe through, through the whole of the cow. That'll be one of the first things that I will look at because it'll have both the bearing on intake, you know, how much can be included in the ration, yeah, and, and, and how much net energy of lactation they're going to get from that fraction of the forage. So we'll, we'll part that for a second. That's one. I'm going to look at uh, ammonia production in, in the fermentation process to give me a feel for whether that fermentation went the right way or not. I'm certainly going to pay attention to a, a, a clumsy name, and then we'll just refer to the acronym, acid detergent insoluble crude protein as the percent crude protein. It's on all the reports. People just gloss by it. That's the ADCIP, right? You got it. That's the one, the ABICP. That's the one that's going to give us a real good feel for how this crop was brought in from the field, you know, how it was chopped and packed and sealed, the efficiency of the process. And we can come back and drill down on these. But if, if we're talking the 30,000 foot view, so we've got the NDF digestibility, you know, we, we, we've got the ammonia fraction as percent CP and then the ADICP. And then the other one, not to lose sight of, if we take dry matter and moisture content as a given, I think everybody's familiar where the targets should be and need to be. You know, I, I think the other one that, that we've got blind on over the years is, you know, soil contamination or, 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 or total ash. So th those are some of the things I drill down on. And then I'll kind of circle back around and look at some of the parameters, maybe like, is there some residual sugar which could be useful in winter feeding or, you know, hard to manage in summer feeding with aerobic spoilage and then our old friend crew protein that we talked to. But there's lots in the forage analysis to help us understand how the cows can use it. And perhaps more importantly, on a proactive basis, what we could do in subsequent cuts, you know, to change or improve things or subsequent years, if, if that's the case. So just to finish up and hand back to you, Keith, th 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 there is merit in, in an advisor uh, and the primary producer just going back over previous reports and saying that was good that was not so good you know what do we do then what can we do this year you know to, to, to help make things a little bit better to, to, to the improvement of income of a feed cost in the whole herd yeah like to kind of boil it down and i kind of want to go back to the ndf part because i think that's probably yeah. the the one indicator that's i don't know if i would say it's the most important but it's one of the most important and i think one of the least understood uh mm -hmm. kind of analysis is on the sample and if we're doing all this work to get you know cut on time chopped on time mm -hmm. packed on time um when we're finally looking at the sample with that ndf like what should we be looking for like i know there's lots of there's a i think a 10 hour and a 20 hour and a 30 yeah. hour and a 240 hour yeah. uh ndf number on there yeah. like what would be the the key key one to look at no that's a good question in reality <clears throat> they're all useful but if we want to drill down and, and give ourselves some simplistic benchmarking I, I i tend to look more closely at the ndfd digestibility fraction over a 30 hour period okay uh and that will give us a feel for how it's going to be used in, in the productive dairy cows. Now, I, I know there is a, a bit of a counter argument in the industry to, to look at the 24 hour period, um, but there is some lag phase of digestion that means that may not be so useful. So I think, you know, most of the particles will be chewed and retained and recycled with inside that 24 to 30 hour period. So I think the 30 hours is probably the best benchmark in terms of the extent of digestion of the NDF fraction. I think the other thing that people uh, forget, and these are on the reports, Keith, there's um, a little number there. It's called the rate fraction. You'll see it identified as um, KD, the, the, the rate of NDF digestion. Uh, and, and a simple rule of thumb from somebody like me, because I like something simple when I'm, when I'm looking in the field, if, if it's less than 4% per hour, and, that, and that's how they'll be put on the report, this is not much use for high-producing dairy cows. You know, no matter, no matter how much they chew it and make it available to the microbes in the rumen, it's just not going to be broken down fast enough by microbial fermentation to be any use. But as, as you would appreciate with your experience, you, 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 you get a range of values out there. Let, let me frame some for you to kind of help differentiate between some of the forage types in haylage you know, and maybe corn silage that's different again. If, 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 if we look at what we know about grass, which is uh, high, high, highly digestible, 
you know, uh, then then you, you, you'll find rate values in there depending on the type of grass. But assuming we, we got out of the right time at the right growth stage, you, you can have values in there of seven, eight, nine percent per hour. OK, that would be that would be real nice. Alfalfa can be up there sometimes if it's cut real early. But often the alfalfa lays down lignin in a way it's more like a miniature tree. So sometimes for the alfalfas, it wouldn't be unusual to find, you know, four and a half, five, five and a half percent rate, rate values per hour. OK. Uh, and, and therein lies the difference. The secret to alfalfa, I think, is more, you know, how fragile it is. And that's a challenge in making, but that can increase its turnover through the cows. But grasses have a big role to play. The only problem with both these crops is, as you've indicated, they have to be got at the right growth stage. And then just to frame corn silage for the audience, you know, if, if you think about a, a non-modified crop, in other words, a non-BMR hybrid, so a conventional hybrid, you know, that, that I've seen those range this year from 3.7 you know, percent per hour MDF digestibility rate uh, all, all the way up to five point something. And obviously, you know, if you do come across a, a, a BMR, uh, that's going to be higher still. But again, I, I go back to my point before in terms of, you know, benchmarking forages, unless something is over four percent per hour, you know, rate of digestion of, of, of the MDF over that 30 hour time period. It's got it's, it's got limited use, you know, for for the dairy cow. And, and why is that like that number under 4%? Like, is that just kind of an indicator of passage rate? Like they're just not getting the flow through? Well, it's just yeah, yeah. It fills them it's up. Just too slow. It's just too slow. Yeah. Uh, 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 and it goes back to something that you and I have to get our audience thinking about. You know, often, you know, our, our focus is, you know, on the ration formulation and the feed management, right? That's both what we do. But we're both aware we have to keep taking steps back. And one thing, 66 years old, Keith, you're never too young to learn, right? What, what I tend to find is I look at these, I then have to ask myself the question. And, and you, you gave part of the answer in the frame of the question is, how early, say, for Haley's crop, you know, did, did, did we get out there? You know, did we use a PEAQ stick for the for, for, for the alfalfa? You know, was it vegetative or did we feel that we were short on inventory and this is a great tightrope and we let it go on a bit further? Did the weather interrupt that? Same with the grasses, you know, did we get it just, just before the heading stage or has things headed out? Now, there's no blame here. We're not pointing fingers, but sometimes, you know, the weather's not always in people's favour. But you, you have to pick a time, particularly with first cut, when you can get the highest quality, you know, which in other words is the lowest NDF content coupled with the highest NDF digestibility and get that crop in. And so that sets the stage for the subsequent cuts. Uh, and really where you and I would go with this, depending on how effective people could be with wilting and maybe with alfalfa crops if there's any leaf loss along the way or fermentation losses we're trying to protect as much of that ndf digestibility as, as possible so to me it starts right out in the in the field with with, with the first cup for the haylage crops and if we segue quickly to the corn silage you know basically as with all these crops, but corn silage shows it as well. This is an interaction between the hybrid and its environment. And, and a classic example for you and I, which would be something that we couldn't control. You know, if, if we got some rainfall, say before silking, that would be a different crop to rainfall after silking, right? In terms of both, you know, stover to grain ratio, which would be the obvious one, but also in terms of, you know, let's say NDF digestibility. So, you know, even, even, a, even a given good hybrid, in a compromised locale, you know, could could, could be challenged. And, and, and that's where I like to use analysis and have conversations back to the crop consultant and the producer to say, are, are we growing the right hybrids in the right area? So one thing this brings us back to, which is not profound, but it is it's important to think about is, don't jump on the latest bandwagon of what seems to be fashionable to grow. What what does your farm grow best with, with the locale and the soil type and the microclimate it has? So I think, you know, forage quality is going to start there with, a, with, a, with an agronomic consideration, how best to grow those crops. And then you and I are right in encouraging the client to, you know, get, get the crop at, at the right growth stage. Crucially important for haylages because it sets the scene for the multi-cut system, but just as important for the corn silage because in reality, you and I are tracking that dry down rate in the field for them. And we don't want that to go too dry because that's going to be a problem as well. Right. So there's a lot hidden in there. And we can you and I can make practical suggestions in terms of chop length or theoretical length of cut if things don't quite go the way we want. And there are a few things we can tweak in ration formulation or enhance the rumen. But basically, once that crop is cut, the, the, the die is cast with the lignin to NDF ratio. Right. That's what we've yeah. got. That's the best it will ever be. 
I got two questions here, and I think I'll I I know my squirrel brain here is going to jump around, but um, <laughs> all right. with NDF digestibility or even the rate function, can that be changed through fermentation, or is that set in the crop in the field? And then okay, so now that's 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 a really good question, and 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 there's there's a three part answer to that. Primarily, the, 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 the actual amount that could take place in theory, as a maximum, is, is set by the stage of growth and, and, and the cutting in the field, right? That Once you do it, you, you, you can set it. But there are, there are, it gets complex here. There are, there are variable degrees of, of NDF digestibility. There are fractions that are potentially more digestible than others. And so, that, so there are things that can take place in, in, in the management of the crop, you know, that can, that can change, okay, how, how that goes. And, and particularly in, in, in the feeding scenario, let's, Let's think of something that you and I are both aware of just to kind of frame this for the audience. Just suppose for sake of argument, we don't have a good handle on the forage to grain ratio or for some reason, the starch content changes in the ration and, and one was unaware. I'm just thinking of maybe something changed in the corn silage or the digestibility or snapper is changed or something like that. It is possible that NDF digestibility, you know, can be changed by sort of uh, ra ration constraints or feed management constraints. And let me give you a couple of examples that will help help the audience relate to this. You know, if, if we've got too much fermentable carbohydrate or starch or sugar, you know, that 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 can be depressed NDF digestibility. Equally, if, if we don't have the right amount or enough, um, we, we won't express that full potential that was cut from the crop from the field. So, so there are rational interactions immediately. Um, or, although we play down you know the, the the influence of protein in the ration you and i both be aware from published literature that there is a minimum requirement you know of 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 nitrogen for the rumen and we track that through mun uh, and we try and work with lower milk urea nitrogens now but if, if it got too low we could we could starve some of those bugs including the fiber digesting bugs and then and then the one that isn't thought about very often but is always dear to my heart you know the best way to express, you know, the, the, the optimal NDF digestibility is actually within feed management. Again, think of a classic example down at the feed bunk. Um, it, it's perhaps more akin to a, a TMR, but we could think about cases of PMR where it might have an effect as well with robots. But hear me out here. Just suppose on my side of the St. Lawrence, we're, we're, we're 1x feeders and in terms of dropping the TMR, but we don't have a good push-up routine. You know, what that means is cow sort, so get more grain than they need, or maybe they can't reach the, the feed, and then when the fresh feed comes down, they slug feed. So there's been great work done in Canada, actually, by, by Trevor DeVries at the University of Guelph, you know, lo looking at the challenges on, on rumen function and particularly NDF digestibility, where feed management has, has not been what it was. And so by definition, cows have slug fed themselves into a problem and depend, you know, depressed NDF digestibility. So let me just round that bit up because this was a, a key question you asked. Anytime you and I look at a, a, an analytical report form, those numbers there are likely to be the best that they can be. And, and everything else after that depends how we can get that expressed or whether there'll be some features of ration formulation or cow feeding behavior that can, that can depress it along the way. It's amazing walking through barns and seeing how much cows sort and particle length. And I think we'll get into particle length a little bit because yep. I think it's important yep. to, I think there's yeah, that. Yeah, it, it ties with, into that NDF pipe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's the whole eating versus cud chewing yep. line time ratio, but it, it, it's exactly. just interesting. But I kind of want to circle back and mm. can you maybe talk about the role of lignin? And I know people talk about it, but maybe help the producers understand kind of what it is and why we want to have that as low as possible. Sure, sure. So lignin is one of these inescapable facts of, of plant growth because it, it gives it structure. And it's also to a degree almost like their own, you know, suntan lotion built in. So lignin to you and I, you know, with a fancy word we call it, I think Keith is a polyphenol complex. To the producer, the way I'd look at it is, you know, you want to grow digestible forages and you kind of see what that looks like. But anytime you've got, you know, plastic wood, anybody who's using wood filler in carpentry, but any any indigestible plastic, you know, lignin lignin is a is, is a part of a chemical in the fiber fraction that that is indigestible. And the name of the game, I think, if we focused on hay crops would be, you know, to cut at an early growth stage and then have 
repetitive cuts, say, every 28 to 34 days afterwards to make sure that while there's enough lignin for the plant to stand up and not lay down and give us a harvest challenge, there's not an excess of lignin that will, if you like, block the digestion of the NDF and, and, and not allow us to get the energy um, out of the crop right. So it's something that, you know, we, we, we can't control too easily except through plant breeding and i think the audience would be aware that there would be things like bmr corn silage where they've deliberately dropped the lignin down so let's give a worked example you know typically in some conventional hybrids of corn silage you know you could see something like say 3.8 to 4 percent lignin on on a dry matter basis right but if you get a bmr it's two and a half percent and so you know they've reduced that lignin fraction by plant breeding down by about 40 or 50 percent that has a huge impact given the, the comment you made about chop length that has a huge in, impact on on the on the rate of ndf digestibility uh, and, and we've seen the same sort of progress just recently in maybe some of these low, lower lignin alfalfas right and so that's uh, that, that that's an issue that is a tightrope we walk we manage lignin by cutting the crop at the right time it's an inescapable part of, of, of the plant fiber because it helps give the plant structure and some protection and, and you can gather from from what i've said that there, there could be times where there could be an excess of solar radiation and maybe no water so we euphemistically call that a drought and, and you find some of those hay crop plants will force themselves on to the vegetative stage releasing producers are scratching their head and they're like well i've not got much out there i could do i go get it and when they do get it they realize this is far off dry cow feed or heifer feed because the plant just lignified itself in response to a to, to, to an environmental challenge so lignin we have to live with but we, we we if the plant breeder isn't helping us we we, we try and minimize it you know uh, to, to our best advantage yeah well i find it really intriguing too because you know we look at alfalfa as a quality with crude protein but it actually is typically a lower quality feed yep. if you look at it from the lignin side of things because the lignin is typically you know 40 percent of the fiber yep. or higher yeah absolutely yeah and yeah and, espe and especially i think we got a really we had some like here in ontario i know we had some some hot weather last summer and it just the feed isn't like it looks good on paper it just doesn't it's not translating into the bulk tank like i think it should sometimes so well we also have very I, I, wet weather too so yeah 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 so so that's interesting keith let, let, let's just pursue that because you know i've always found alfalfa a, an enigmatic crop i mean i know people call it the queen of forages and there are parts of the us i can go to um you know which grow alfalfa really well like wisconsin we don't so much in upstate new york but we do have we do have mixed swords where it's in but it's exactly what you say if, if you look at the structure of maybe um a growing grass of of, of any type you know if you get it at the right stage it's it, it's pretty soft and playable if you look at alfalfa, it reminds me of a bush or a tree. <laughs> so <laughs> if things don't go well for it and it needs to protect itself or it gets away from us, you know, in the end, we, we missed the bud stage and now the flowers are starting to appear. Uh, that and then you've got these environmental effects that you're talking about this is a this is a plant that if you think structurally about a tree to maintain that branch formation to your comment it's going to lay down more lignin than the grasses as a percentage of ndf uh, and if it gets challenged and stressed it, it, it certainly will and and you know peter van Soos many years ago at cornell ju ju just made the critical difference for us in terms of you know if, if you wrap the stems around your finger they're brittle it's saving graces as it shatters and it brittles so it, it, it can be chewed in the room and if, if, if you can get it to a, a reasonable chop length I, I think the downside for you and i in that scenario is some of the research i've seen is not only are the stems brittle the leaves are brittle and, and, and harvesting this stuff at a, a compromised dry match to avoid a bad fermentation means there's always a risk of leaf shatter or leaf loss right so um i, I want to stand by your comment I, I want producers to understand this um alfalfa is an enigmatic crop it's tricky and just because it has a high crude protein content there is no direct linear relationship between the protein content which is easy to take up by those deep rooting plants when there's sufficient potassium around compared to the ndf digestibility which will be responding to those challenges challenges around it like like you've laid out so um we, we we've certainly i'm not saying we're right in new york but because we can't grow good alfalfa it ends up being a disaster for us if we have some it, it, it's more part of a combination with a you know a, a well-known grass that can do well over the season in upstate new york 
And you kind of touched on grasses and I know I've been having the conversation a lot lately with producers. Um, and actually it's more driven by them just with feed costs, the way they are yeah. about adding some like cooler season grasses and things like that. And can you maybe just kind of touch on, on some crops on that? Like what would you look for, for say a typical lignin or NDF uh, D or KD rate function on something like that? Just to. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, let's, let's talk the whole uh, enchilada here. If you look at some of the more common grass species that will do well for us, you know, then, then the, the interesting thing is let us take some numbers, say a quality alfalfa, you know, and hidden in there be some lignin that you've talked about might be 38 to 42 NDF, right? It, it, it might be that on a dry mm -hmm. matter basis. A grass always, always got, you know, short shrift in the industry because, you know, people looked at that and said, wow, these things are like, you know, 50, 55% NDF sometimes higher. But I mean, I think at any given good growth stage, the digestibility range of the grasses is, is 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 far high, and we'll come to the rate values in a minute. But you know the N, the NDFD thirties are, are are higher than, than, than an alfalfa as well, and that ties into this lignin and this indigestible you know NDF fraction. So you know at any given growth stage, although superficially the NDF value looks high, what's hidden in that total NDF value, which gets a little bit abstract and misleading, but let's talk about it, is with inside those fractions we can break them down with inside the NDF, Keith. I think to three fractions something that's totally indigestible which contains most of the lignin but there'll be other fractions in there as well there's some that's digestible over a period of time and then there's a readily fermentable or readily digestible ndf and and, and that's the fraction that that grass has a lot of and so when you look at the total ndf you're kind of thinking that looks high that's gonna be a problem but what people don't realize it's how digestible a lot of the major fractions are uh, in, yeah. in, in in the grass species and and that's the bit that's been missed for years yeah, and you look at it, like you can just look at the sample. Oh, it's low protein and it's low, it's high fiber. Like this isn't gonna be very good feed. And then the cows go right. at it and they just and it surprises can't everybody. shut them. Like they just milk so so hard on it. Yeah. But what happens is their intake goes up and they're just they're using more plant material to make energy. Like and a lot of times you see their feed intake come up. And when feed intake comes up, we're making more microbial protein, which is translating into more milk for um, on the cow side. So. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to pick up on that because I, I, I think you and I'll keep coming back to this, and 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 I think part of the psychological drive in the industry is you know, feed prices are high and protein prices are definitely not cheap, and so there's there's always this psychological pull towards a higher protein crop, forgetting about NDF digestibility, and and it, and if we just took a a rough set of numbers, Keith, like maybe NDF ranges from across all the Halish crops. Let's just paint with a broad brush say 38% to 55% NDF and proteins range from 14% to 22%. If you just think about the percent on a dry matter basis, it's it's the NDF digestibility that has the biggest sway on what, on, on what the cows are going to do. Uh, and we both already agreed that the NDF digestibility, you know, with inside the framework of grass is a lot more digestible. So I, I think we just want, you know, producers and consultants to think, you know, the protein's fine as far as it goes, but there are lots of smart things you can do in ration formulation with, say, mm -hmm. some feed-grade urea or some protected urea and some economic nitrogen sources. You you can build that up, and we don't want to overdo the MUN anyway. So to me, I've, I've never wanted people to get into the weeds with a protein fraction and get lost with that. I've always wanted people to focus on the digestibility of the NDF, and if we just crystallize it real simple for our, our audience, I mean, basically what we're saying in that NDF fraction, you've got lignin, we've talked about that, Acid detergent fiber, which is, you know, the lignin plus the cellulose, it's kind of hard to get at some of those fibrils. And then the hemicellulose fraction, which can be more digestible. And there's a large part of that in the grasses. And, and, and the cows really respond to that, right? That's what they respond to. Well, and the cows don't have uh, a nitrogen requirement. Like the, the rumen has a nitrogen yep. requirement, but right. the cow has an amino acid requirement. Yep. Yeah. And so how do we make more amino acids? And when you drive dry matter intake, you make more microbial protein, which are amino acids. Yeah. Which are absorbed. Yeah. Like it just, I think, yeah. I think the, oh, it's looking at it in the conventional way that we did 25 years ago at oh, high crude protein, good, low fiber, good. I, I think we have to kind of reevaluate that because there has been so much research done and the models are all, 
way more technologically advanced than than what producers were using 25 20 25 Absolutely. 30 years ago yeah. right like we can yeah. look <clears throat> we can really kind of drill these forages apart and really all we're looking at is lignin and the rate function because yeah. it's really that all that matters is is how much yeah. forage we can put in there right so yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and if we want to just keep banging that that nitrogen comment, I mean, just something struck me. Often when I'm looking at these, um, Keith, I'm looking at residual sugars if the fermentation has gone well. And, you know, you know yourself, like any, any starting point in, in Ontario, you know, depending on the degree of cloud cover and what the growing days are, the sugar contents by definition are low in alfalfa crops. That makes it problematic for fermentation. But here, here was where my point was going to go. It's also problematic for any usable sugar to stimulate the bugs in the room. You, you, you look at the grasses, um, that, that they're typically a lot higher residual sugar content. I mean, the main engine driver is your point, which is that digestible NDF coming from those, those grass crops. But they're, they're usually blessed because they're not depressed by the potassium and nitrogen content, usually blessed with a high residual sugar content, which does not all get used up for fermentation. Fermentation. So when, I, when I'm looking at um, sugar contents on a dry matter basis, which is kind of down down on my shopping list, but it's not unusual for Ensal, you know, grass hailer just to have something like, you know, three, four, five, six, seven percent. It, it just depends. Uh, and I had a classic example of this, which wouldn't fly in the States, but I'll just explain it to you. You know, as we started to move from what we call permanent pasture grasses in the UK to more perennial ryegrass, and then our tetraploids and Italian ryegrasses came along, which were super high in sugars. They had super high digestibility of NDF as well. But not that much more than perennials, but the residual sugar content was really useful. And the cows responded to that. And you, you and I will see to see a, a, a few more steps in that direction. That The persistency of some of these grasses is hard to maintain in northern climes, but I know I've seen things come along like, you know, festolium, which is kind of a hybrid between lolium, bren and, and, and fescue to try and give something that will get some traction in the North American market that will have those digestible NDF characteristics and, and some residual carbs for digestion in the rumen as well. It all comes back to your point is this that it doesn't matter what the crude protein content in the crop really is as far as you and i are concerned to get the best result for our producers the digestible forages will generate that microbial protein mm -hmm. that microbial protein is the ultimate balanced source of amino acids which is what you laid out and i agree with and that's really what what, what drives the engine as well as the engine that the yeah the, the, the energy that these liberate so it's a twofer you get the energy from the ndf fermentation uh, and you grow the high quality protein uh, and that's what the rumor was all about in the first place yeah it, and it's interesting you talk about the sugars with the grasses because i had some uh triticale samples last spring and like you just grab that stuff and it's sticky yeah and like when you got the sugar in there too you get super high NELs. like we're talking yeah 155s when 1.6s which is i don't know what that is in american you know in, in old money <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, poor, I just told you, you put me on the spot. Point here. sevens, seven point yeah, seven per seven, pound. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> corn silage, point seven, yeah, just yeah, like, a, yeah. Like, a, like a good corn silage, you're looking at 0.75, maybe 0.76, yeah, right. right? So, yeah, I, I think that it just we just have to kind of it, it's got to be a balance, right? Like, we got to look at growing a feed that's going to fill the bunk because at the end of the day, we still have cows that have to eat every day, yeah. Yeah. And so are we going to fill that bunk with high quality or moderate quality or, or low quality? I guess that's the that's the real question. But I think in this high high feed price time, like, sure, we're going to take a little bit of a yield hit, but I think yeah. our quality is going to going to make up for it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing that uh, you talked about and I kind of want to touch on is ash because ash yeah. is an energy killer. And can you yes. maybe explain what the ash uh, portion of the forage sample is yeah i mean so over the years we've all become ash blind and got used to seeing high ash values and um the, the ash strictly speaking actually should represent just the internal mineral content of the crop right and so depending what the crop type is so we take alfalfa at the tops it's got a lot of potassium and, and calcium intrinsically in it sells that you'd expect a slightly higher ash content there but strictly speaking they should be more than about 9% on a dry matter basis. You, know, you take the grasses, they'll be lower, about 7 8%, depends on the type of grass. And the corn silage is lower still, you know, 4% mm -hmm. maybe. What, what happens is you and I routinely, and, and we all pass a blind eye, 
me, I'm guilty as well. We start to see these 10, 11, 12, 13, 14%. I've seen some as high as 18%. What, what Ash is now telling us is, you know, the intrinsic mineral content of the plant that's within inside itself, which can be used, it's in the cell sap, and then the external contamination from, you know, soil, uh, dust that might blow around and any fecal contamination that has the ash content as well, right? And so um, to, to, to me, I, I, I see ash as a problem for, 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 for at least three reasons. Your point, there's no energy value in ash, so it, 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 it dilutes out the energy content, right? That, that's certainly, you know, the first thing. Um, it, it also is, is going to have um, some, some level of what you and I would call, or I would call certainly, bad actor microbes. So now that we're re-inoculating the crop with stuff that we didn't want. I mean, the thing that springs to mind is, you know, the land has been used for years as a recycling medium for animal, you know, manure and, 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 and natural sources of fertilizer on the farm. And so now, you know, it's obviously a reservoir of E. coli, Clostridia, Klebsiella, you know, all those bad actor microbes that do two things, nothing good for the fermentation and nothing good for the guts of the cows when they're being recycled through. So now it's 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 a source of what you and I would call contamination and a, and a hygienic quality risk. And, the, and there's a very interesting piece of work just come out recently about two or three years ago by a vet called Dr. Jeremy Sheffers, just just looking at the abrasive action, you know, of this stuff all, along the GI tract. You know, not so much in the room and where it's pretty well keratinized because it has to resist the acids. And, and wood, but as you go down the, the lower GI tract, you know, starting to slough and, and scrape like a Brillo pad, you know, on, on, on that tender mucus lining in, in the lower GI tract. And I think, you know, this vet's come to the conclusion that both the abrasive nature of soil um, and the fact that it's a reservoir for bad actor microbes is, is going to be a risk for some of those lower gut syndromes that, that, that we see from time to time. I mean, euphemistically called hemorrhagic bowel syndrome, but it, but it doesn't always have to be that. And, and he's not always seen that when he's cut cows open, but he has seen lower GI challenges from the presence of excess soil. So I think there's all sorts of reasons why we don't want, you know, soil contamination in, in, in the crop. But there, there are a few pinch points along the way that we can talk about that, that, that we'd have to do to minimize that, right? Yeah, and, and just to kind of put it in perspective, like, is it, for instance, if I'm looking at a haylage sample and one sample's 9% ash and the next one's 13% ash, that's 4% four, four different, right? So if you take 1,000 right. well, well, kilograms well, yeah, of dry yeah. matter, that's 40, yeah. 40 kilos. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, and and that's the way to look at it. You, you, you've just done it. it it's forty, it's forty kilos of soil per ton on a dry matter basis. And if you're more, you know, it's, 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 more because, yeah. like, if we look at, like, we're gonna have, you're gonna have your minerals, right? You're gonna have your calcium, your yeah. potassium, your, yeah. like, they're just not gonna be, like, they're they're just the ash. Like, it's just what's yeah. left over. And when we start adding soil in there, we keep pushing that number up, and we're just we're trying to ensile dirt, which. I don't know if I've had any luck trying to do that before. No, that that that'll never fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, it just throws every it just throws the whole fermentation thing off, in my opinion. So, yeah, so I mean, I, I do these calculations on the back of an envelope, just like your good self, and that, those are high numbers that we see, but we see them all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 anybody who doubts that, then we take a larger sample and split it in two and. You know, wash one half under a faucet and send it off. Obviously, the dry matter is corrupted, but you get what the true sample should be that's not contaminated and compare it. But at the end of the day, it comes back to your point. It's, it's a lot more soil that we need to bring in. Part of this, I think, is the cutting height approach. You know, um, we don't want to be scalping fields and, you know, we, we want some regrowth opportunity. Uh, and it goes back to a psychological point that you made, Keith, and it is germane that we always have to have this trade off between like quality and quantity. <laughs> Yeah, I see it in a lot of farms here. There's just the risk that we go too low. Um, and, and, and going too low, you're, ju you're just getting some of the more indigestible fractions and ash. So it's not really merited. I mean, as, as, as a good average rule of thumb, and it varies a bit between crop types, you know, and I'll have to use old money here, but a residual stubble of, of, of three inches is, is, is really useful to have behind for all sorts of reasons. And that isn't always um, adhered to. But there are other ways that, you know, soil... Um, and, and ash can get in through the through the silage making processes as well you know either being bladed in accidentally if we're going off like a, a black top or a concrete area or maybe wheelings and trackings 
And um, yeah, it's just something we need to avoid. And even modern equipment, you know, even in a dry time, some of the modern chopping equipment, particularly the way the nizer angle can have a type of downdraft that will that will blow some dust up all the time. And there are certain geographic areas where I can see soil where I wouldn't expect to see it. I think you and I would both expect to see hay crops challenge. And I think the reason is obvious because depending how we approach the hay in a day and the wide swath, at some stage, we've got to bring it back together, like with a mm -hmm. rake or a merger. And there's another risky opportunity there for soil contamination. But you'd be surprised. Sometimes I see um, stuff on corn silages in excess of what I'd want to see. And generally speaking, for us on the east all the way up, it's not an issue because we cut our corn silage crops high enough to for that not to be an issue but I, I can think of areas further west where they'll they'll cut a lot lower on good land for corn silage and and bring soil in and have the same risks of energy dilution bad actor microbes and and you know physically physically uh, um, aggressively scoured guts in in animals that, that are getting brillo padded by this soil contamination well that's interesting like i think the midwest or the northwest we'd or sorry northeast or, or midwest we'd have to look at like corn silage would be rain and tracking yeah. one in more than anything Splashing because tracking, yeah. i know there's falls where you <laughs> drive down the road and it's just every field's running up they're trying to get silage off or whatever and and yeah. uh it's just the nature of the beast you got to make feeds so it is we'll and, it. and that that's that's the line mm. of empathy we want to add like we're, we're banging the drum here for forage quality but I, I, I sometimes feel there are times like you've described where there's an element of call it salvage, one of a better word. The weather's against you or the conditions against you and you're going to have to go. My, 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 my only comment about that and, and having spent four years in the industry, there's no problem salvaging crops and, and, and making them to the best of your ability. They're just not going to perform the same way as a crop that wasn't in a salvage scenario, right? Uh, just by definition. I don't care if it was a top of the line BMR corn silage. If, if it got salvaged in a lot of soil, it's just going to perform differently. And, and, and that's just the nature of the beast again. Yeah. And I guess we have to put it into context. We're talking about perfect world scenarios where yep. every day on the farm, there is situations and scenarios thrown at you. You don't know what's going to happen. So, no, you know, a chopper I, breaks I, down. Yeah. You see the stop lines yourself, yeah. so you know something, something yeah. happened, right? There's a there's a there's a there's a, a line of brown or orange depending yeah. what the type of crop it is, and you know they were down to thirty six to forty eight hours. It's nobody's fault, it's just what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I know we touched earlier too, we talked about uh particle length. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting one because I know I for, I forget who was doing the work. It was it Rick Grant about the yeah, Rick Grant, the, the chewing time versus rumination time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just thought that was really fascinating that the more time she's ruminating, the less time she can eat. And vice versa. And vice versa, yeah. right? So. Yeah, right. So th th this puts you and I in a real difficult position. I mean, not to have a discussion about it, but, you know, the stuff we have to measure, because to me now, Keith, it becomes an interaction between like the dry matter and moisture content of the crop, you know, the crop's maturity, the particle length. Okay, yeah. and then the system it's going to be stored. So, I mean, let's take let's take a bit of time on this. If we just backtrack and help the audience understand, you know what 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 you know, Kurt started Kurt Kotank when he was at the miner, and then then Rick pursued was he was fascinated by the effect on a on a, a, a diet of a, of a given protein and energy content. What what effect particle size would have? And Rick had done this work before, you know, as a as a PhD student, but wanted to pursue it under modern day feeding scenarios. And, uh, you know, the way he worked this is he used uh, different chop lengths of Timothy Hay. So it's, it was what we would call added long stem fiber, chopped to different lengths to, to, to elicit a cow response. And, you know, if you put some of these, you know, long indigestible lengths in, uh, the cows really struggled to eat what they wanted to eat. The rumors were full. They're spending all the time processing that lignin and indigestible fiber, not, 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 not getting the dry matter intakes up and not, you know, not, not making the milk. Uh, and then, you know, as, as he started to narrow that down in inclusion, rate or change the particle size to a shorter length he started to get improved care responses i mean that'd be a summary of the three trials he's done on this where, where, where that leaves me and you in, in practice is most of the time we are going to talk about cutting high quality forages at the correct target dry matter so we're going to have in our back of our minds a theoretical length of cut that we feel comfortable with. but i want to preface this because what happened in tandem with Rick's work, he realized what, when we all look at that Penn State shaker box that the top tray, the stuff that's over 
what is it, 19 millimeters long? Something it's really, yeah. mean, really three quarters of an inch, right? I think. Yeah. yeah, three quarters of an inch. It's meaningless. You know, that was the stuff that you didn't want around. Cows could sort that out too easy. So in conjunction with his rate of passage work and his particle length work, he realized that the stuff right the way down there on the eight millimeter tray was the stuff that was the main engine driver and how hard for cows to saw. So I think you and I are likely, I've seen shorter, you and I are still likely with the way modern forage harvesters work, at least for corn, you know, to think about the, the three quarters of an inch or 20, 21, 22 millimeter chop length is a good place to be. There are some people testing that and, and going a bit shorter, but I think we've come a long way you know, from, from the long long particle length shredlage ideas, we're just going for this material that's, you know, a, a short length of cut, relatively speaking, but also great kernel processing. But again, Keith, I think, and you guide me, where I would change my advice on this, if the stuff got away from us and this corn silage comes in at, say, 42, and I've seen these this morning, 42, 44% dry matter, I'm going to advise that we chop shorter because we want we want the packing density. We don't want the aerobic deterioration. We need the packing density. Uh, and so I think a lot of that is horses for courses. I think where it gets really interesting for you and I to extend this conversation is, is the hay crop, right? You know, if we got mm -hmm. really early cut grass, that's a lot of leaf. We would we would be okay with with, with a longer cut length if, if the moisture content was in the acceptable target range, okay? 35. 38 40 if it starts to get real dry again we're going to think about a shorter chop length what 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 i really took from rick's work to kind of paraphrase real quickly is if you had a hay crop that got away from you for whatever reason and the digestibility was compromised and it was available to excess or surplus in other words you couldn't use it all up through the smaller far off a dry cow pen and the lower appetite the replacement so you were going to dance some of this into a lactating dairy cow ration it was better to short short chop that so that there was less chewing time for the high producing dairy cow to process it so it it gives you and me and the producer an awful lot to think about target chop lengths. And I, and I would say, even if one got a little bit too aggressive um, on the haylage, and I've talked to Rick Grant about this, uh, the haylage feed into a chopper is a little bit more uneven, say, compared to the linear feed of a corn silage. So whatever TLC that we choose, there will still be some long particles left because it's, it's not a uniform cut length at any, any given particle setting on, 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 on the chopper. So, you know, um, I've had people short chop some, some very dry haylages in, in, in a difficult year to be able to utilise them all the way across the herd, not, not just the replacements and dry cows. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's changed a little bit with uh, mergers too. I think mergers are doing a better job than the yeah than a rotary rig because you're just getting more uniform feed in yeah in there, and you can kind of. It's funny. I've always kind of wondered about and playing around with uh, on choppers and trying to get that cut more consistent on haylage on alfalfa, yeah. and it just seems like you're chasing a white elephant. Like it just doesn't absolutely. You can yep. feed up the the feed in rolls or the or the cutter head or change your ledger bar. It doesn't work. <laughs> no, right, right, right. No, it doesn't because if if you think about the higgledy piggledy feed of the way that goes, you always end up with some long particles anyway. I, I would have to say, Keith, on, on balance, I'm going to say two things here. They're like, they're like bookend comments. I know I don't want. I'll, I'll paraphrase the one so I don't mislead the audience. But you know. I shake out a lot of haylages like you do, and, and whenever I see them, they don't fall into the original Penn State recommendations. I think we're partly tower silo driven anyway. So for obvious reasons, bunks and piles don't. There's a lot more long particles in the top tray. So the first thing I would say is there's maybe a little bit more room with hay crops to have a slightly shorter chop length just because of the way the machine handles it, as you've described. The other thing is I, I, I had a, an email conversation with Rick Grant about this because it intrigued me because I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to feel more and more when I'm shaking out TMRs. This is TMRs, Keith, not so much PMRs. I might take a different view for robot milkers. When I'm shaking out TMRs, um, I'm less worried about what's in the top tray to the point if it's just one or two percent, it doesn't matter. What I'm really focused on is the next tray down, the eight millimeters, you know, and then look look at the finer fractions in the four millimeter and the pan after that. But it seems to me from Rich work that, you know, everything that's happening eight millimeters and longer is um is the engine drive. And where I'm going with this, I just said to Rick, in the real practical world, Rick, how low would you go? if I put you on the spot and what TLC setting would you have with Haley? You said <laughs> he framed it nicely. In theory, the TLC, to use the word theory, 
I might think about going down to 12 millimeters cut length, but I wouldn't recommend that at the moment to a commercial primary producer. We'll we'll do the work at um, you know we'll do the work at minor first. And so what they've done, they've now extended this Timothy Hay chop length to what's more real world. In other words, what's the uniform chop length in a given pile? And if we combine that in front of a ration, how does that affect dry matter intake? Because our worst case scenario for you and me is we've got something chopped too short and then the rate of passage is so high the digestibility is compromised and then you and I have to do something drastic with the ration to put something in to slow it down right so that that work hasn't quite been done to the level of a, a primary producer but I guess what I'm trying to signal Keith is as a compared to corn size there's a little bit more wiggle room on haylage to get you know to, to get shorter chop lengths but everybody needs to bear in mind the point that you made it's not uniform going through so you're going to end up with long particles anyway so you know well, and when you look as at as much poop as I do, if you look at mm. like if you're kicking it in the barn and you're looking at the the, the fiber in the manure, it's all very uniform. Like yeah. the cow is going to grind it down, demasculate it, ruminate it back and forth until she can get it down low enough that it'll pass yeah. into the next system. So I I think that so let's, I, let's I agree with you that. on the shaker box. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, let's think about that because, again, I don't want our audience to jump on this, but just so they know, you've made the point about how particles are commuted in the room and the commuted being like worn down, chewed down, and then there's a certain size that they exit through. You know, and you and I would see that if we do like a fecal wash or a boot test, and you're going to see this stuff that's about 10 or 11 millimetres long or about a centimetre, right? And when Kurt Kotak started dipping his hands into stuff that's about to exit the room from dairy cows, and you know they published this that's exactly what they found across a range of diet you know the exit particle size for a big mature cow you know with a big orifice to leave the room and is, is actually about eight to twelve millimeters it just depends a little bit on, on the forage type, you know, alfalfa is more fragile, can break down smaller particles. Grass is a little bit longer. We've talked about that before. But we're, we're, we're just tying the, the whole thing together, which is what's intrigued the industry as to, you know, how short can we go, question yet yeah. to be answered, Keith, to make quality forage to get really good packing in the bunk and still maintain the room and function. We really don't quite know yet, but I think there'll be a lot more coming on this subject and it'll be something we can pick up again in a year or two and there's more published information at commercial level because that's the great thing about the place like a miner they can they can put it into a, a herd that's averaging 44 kilos and tell us exactly what it does yeah and i know kind of back to the shaker box too like the only time i'm worried about stuff in the shaker box is if you start getting about five percent in the top because it's amazing like cows are grown and trained to sort they do yeah. it all the time. It doesn't matter if you've got the perfect forages or whatever. Like there, there's always cows sitting there rolling feed. They're trying yeah. to you're trying to find the goodies in there. So yeah, and I think when Absolutely. you go high, like when you start getting above high, like above five percent, then you start to see cows um, sorting more. I agree with that. I agree with that. I I I, I do believe the top train now has not become meaningless, but because you still need to know whether it's five percent above or 5% and less, you, you, you just don't need to worry about that unless it gets too high. I, I certainly agree with your premise. And me personally, just my own kind of rule of thumb, I love to see 50% of the stuff in that second tray down, eight millimeters. If I can see that, I'm real happy. There are other situations where I might, you know, take less if the NSC content, the total diet is not that high, it's not so challenging, but by and large, I want as many of those forage particles in that area that can't be sorted and will still hang about long, long enough in, in, in the room and to do good. The last thing I kind of wanted to talk about here is is shrink and its effect on your forage yeah. analysis because yeah. I think it's one of the most I bark up this tree all the time. Like and I don't know if it falls on deaf ears sometimes or people are just sick and keep shut the heck up about shrink. But when we're looking at high, high feed cost and talking about shrink, like when we lose shrink on forages, we're not losing the fiber or the lower end stuff, we're losing the, the high end nutrient. And yeah. I just, I, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Well, ab absolutely. You're a man after my own heart. I mean, this is something that even within You trained my, me well, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> well, even in my own organization, we have to keep having this conversation. So, you yeah, know, even in ourselves, if, if we're not quite grasping it, you know, we, we, we have a duty to help our, you know, our audience understand, you know, obviously if, if, if you and I think about the fractions, you know, and what shrink is, it can manifest itself some ways. It can be a little bit of seepage. 
and if it's if it's that then that's all soluble digestible nutrients if it's not seepage it's stuff that microbes have, have worked on with aerobic deterioration due to either poor packing density or, or, or weak sealing, so air gets in. Either way, the, the, these numbers are not insignificant. So if I, if I think about shrink and I, and I think about what that is, it's certainly not the lignin. It's certainly not the ADF. And what tends to happen in shrink is, you know, microbial activity uh, goes for the easiest digestible nutrient, first of all. So it, it goes for stuff that's digestible dry matter. And the only way that's ever going to be replaced is by a sugar source or, or a starch source, because that's actually what's been uh, taken away. And so I've had this conversation with groups before. They'll say, well, you know, we've had so much shrink, um, four, eight, ten percent, whatever it is. And we'll just have to make that up with more forage. It, do, it doesn't work like that because that's not what mm -hmm. you lost. What tends to happen in shrink, anybody who's done the work re really critically and it has been done, you'll see an increase in MDF content and a decrease in overall organic matter digestibility. There was a beautiful piece of work done at the University of Florida. Ad ad admittedly, it was done with Bermuda grass, which I know is not something we grow up here, but it, it was a proof of concept. Uh, they, they they had a, a crop that, that, that got badly contaminated and showed excessive shrink. And, uh, you know, the, the, the total dry matter loss was was around about 10 units and uh, and of eight, 80 80% of that was, was 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 highly digestible and so it was just making the point so whenever I talk about shrinks to clients I want to minimize it and I, I need to help them understand that whatever they think the percent is that's going to have to be made up by extra you know uh, cornmeal or barley or wheat or sugars in, in in the ration because that's that's what's gone missing that's the fraction that goes yeah it's uh it's a more expensive fraction than everybody realizes. And so, you know, in the end, it's self-serving for me, but the calculations that I do, you know, you, you just look at the losses when you base that and replacing it, say, with the price of fine ground cornmeal at the moment. Um, it just makes sense to do everything we can to, you know, cut, pack, you know, and, and seal uh, and, and then manage with the defacer if we can, optimally to minimize shrink. And just to give you a number, I have a I have a colleague I know works in Kansas. He milks um, sixteen thousand cows. I won't mention his name. That won't be fair. But he's a good operator. Uh, he comes from an academic background and decided he wanted to really just go and do it in the field. And he measures everything in and he measures everything everything out. And just for everybody who wants to lowball their own shrink number, this guy who does everything perfect, uh, the author of Money Money Corrected Milk. This guy, he he gets about seven or eight percent shrink. And he's managing things. But so I'm just saying there's an obligatory level of shrink that we can't escape. Everybody thinks that is low. But the best guy I know in North America is getting seven or eight percent. What is everybody else getting? We don't know because we don't measure it. What happens is, Keith, two things happen. It sucks you into putting more into the ration than you want to, because not all this is going to be picked up by the by the NAR analysis. And so now, now you're kind of saying, well, I've I've got this on paper, but the cows are telling me it's not performing to that. And so you, 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 you get that technical bit of the ration formulation and, and it starts to eke up, you know, feed costs gradually over time, which which could have been saved by by proper bump management. It's it's a huge issue. And uh, I want people to just go away for, if, if they hear nothing else from this podcast you know with the best one in the world with everything under control in in an area where the climate is pretty good for making end cell forage seven or eight percent is about the best you can do anything else above that is is, is, is <laughs> excess shrink and so and i know published papers have been as high as 15 to 20 percent and i don't think our farming audience will want to hear that but you'd be amazed how much we could lose and think of the value uh particularly yeah. in a high quality forage scenario and to your point inventory let me leave you with this. I've said 7% as, as a good number. Let me just leave you with, with, with this thought in, in this particular paragraph of the conversation. If you had 4% shrink, which would be phenomenally low, but if, if you had that, that is two weeks extra feed in a year. If you do two weeks divided by 52 weeks, that's 4%. So if you've got 8%, you've got a month's extra feed. So all I'm trying to say now is if, if you build up the framework in your mind, anytime you've lost that amount of digestible dry matter, you've got between two two weeks to a month less less feed available in the inventory. It's just a bigger issue than we all realize. And lower quality. And lower that's quality. The th and that's the thing that, that really we have to drill home. It's not just, yeah, you're, you're losing feed, but you're losing the best nutrients out of that feed. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the funny thing is on that, Dan, let's just circle that and crystallize that in people's minds. That's usually microbial degradation. If it's not seepage, it's definitely microbial degradation in the bunk, the bag, the tower, 
you know, the pit, whatever we want to call it. And if that's the case, that's that digestible energy, the best energy being used to make spoilage microorganisms, when that should have been deposited in the room and making that microbial protein that you were talking about early on in our discussion. So it's funny how these things come back around. Yeah, full circle. I think that's a good spot yeah. to end it, Tony. Yeah. I, uh, I truly appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know I've had you on a couple times here and, and it's always well received and I appreciate your, uh, your experience. I know you've traveled all over the world and I know you're getting back to traveling. I was talking to you in, you're in Wisconsin there last week and yeah. I just wish you all the best and uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, thanks, Keith. I appreciate it. Thanks again for this opportunity. It's always a pleasure to have time with you on the podcast. And thanks to your audience for listening. And if there's any ideas or subject areas you can think about in the future that I might, I might have a view on, feel free to share. Okay. And thanks again for having me with you today. Appreciate it. Yep. Goodbye, everybody. Stay safe and good luck in the 2022 forage making season. Okay. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.